Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome to this edition of Between the Lines, the podcast that deciphers the handwriting, unfolds faded pages and dips into the details of diaries, logbooks and letters written during this same week, there or thereabouts, in 1943, some 80 years ago. Let's start with a quick recap of the situation. In the Far East this week, US forces land on New Georgia in the Solomon Islands. The island hopping strategy is working well and this sees the start of the New Georgia campaign. On the Eastern Front, Operation Citadel is about to get underway. Over the next few weeks, the German army will try using a massive pincer movement to cut off a large bulge in the Russian front, known as the Kursk Salient. The Soviets will concentrate five army groups to defend the region with more than 2,400,000 men, a whopping 20,000 artillery pieces and 3,600 tanks. And as we now know, this will be the first time a major German offensive gets stopped before it achieves a significant breakthrough. An outcome that sits in stark contrast with the push-me-pull-you drawn-out results in North Africa. However, those are all land battles, this week, in between the lines, we're going to start at sea. HMS Warspite has been refitted. Ready for anything, she's got to be put through her paces now, and there's a short training exercise coming up off the coast of Norway. But it's clear she'll soon be heading south to the Mediterranean, where things are warming up from the Allies' perspective. Captain Bertie Packer hasn't received his final orders yet, but he does have an idea where they're going. Sunday, 13th of June. Scapper. Vice Admiral Sir Algernon Willis has arrived and the capital ships of the force have assembled. That's the HMS Nelson, Russell, Valiant, Ashmore, Rodney, Rivet Carnac, Warspite, that's me, and the Indomitable, that's Grantham. Algernon Willis is a clear-headed chap, but depressing to look at. He depresses the sailors, which is a pity because he is a master of tactics. Also, he mumbles because of his false teeth and has a bad habit of asking you a question, and when you give him the answer, you don't know whether he has hoisted it in or not. Anyway, the four cues we brought from South Africa will be with us except that ass quality, who, after ramming me twice when oiling on the way home, has had another collision. Great air of expectancy everywhere. Pantelleria has fallen, so too has Lampedusa. Something big must happen soon, and we shall be in it, I'm sure. The vice-admiral sent for us all today and told us nothing much except that our air setup in North Africa now was terrific and soon would equal the whole of the Luftwaffe everywhere. And we are going to Gibraltar first. The captain of the Rodney is Rivet Karnak, and he told me today that his ship would soon need a long refit as her bottom is falling out. I replied... Just the name of the captain that holds her all together. He didn't see the joke. Guy Russell did. I thought I was funny. 
Later, same evening, off to the practice area again all night. I now have a streaming cold, blast it. Makes me more stupid than ever. Thursday the 17th of June. After three more days of strenuous exercising, including 48 hours with one hour's total sleep, we set off this morning on our adventures. Quite clearly for the invasion of southern Europe. I suspect Sicily first, but perhaps Crete, or the Dodecanese before that. That able, pale, precise admiral of ours held a meeting of his captains this morning, and very quickly cleared up the final points where differences, tactical differences, existed in the force. He is determined to do without signals as much as possible. How right. Flexibility is what he is after. Of course, no operations have been discussed yet. Anyhow, Force H set off at 13.30 on a clear, sunny and invigorating day, fresh and clear. We made a fine showing as we passed through Hoxha Gate and formed up behind our destroyer screen. Nelson, Indomitable, Rodney, Valiant and Warspite in that order. The destroyers include Captain D-8 Scott Moncrief, quite the best-dressed and best-looking captain in the Navy. He knows his stuff. And Shorty Carlyle as stocky, cheerful, bull-terrier of a chap. He's already made a name for himself. He's married to a German wife. The only one I even doubted a little bit was Rivet Karnak, too reserved and gloomy for my taste. But he is all brains and ability. We shall see. Anyhow, we are off. By the way, the Hoxha Gate that Bertie mentioned... Well, Hoxha Gate is a marine channel in the Orkney Islands, which lets ships pass through into Scapa Flow. Bertie is now heading south towards the Med. We'll go a bit further and catch up with Corporal Harry Wilson, our cipher clerk who's stationed out in the Middle East. Last week, we found Harry in the middle of a scheme, an exercise that's set up to reflect an impending live action. Enemy movements may be predicted to some extent to encourage and train specific responses, but the lines of communication must run smoothly under all circumstances, known or not, and that, of course, is where the cipher unit comes in. Harry is attached to three core signals in Syria at HQ Palestine Command, and here he is, following up on last week's scheme with another trial run. This time, it's a practice beach landing. Sunday 13th, still in the middle of this scheme, woke up at 2.15am, no sound of any invasion. At 2.45, a red light shone on one of the ships and there were more dull bangs. One of the linemen said, if this was the real thing, they'd be bombing us now. At 3pm, the eerie silence and impenetrable darkness was broken by fairy lights and flares from the beach defenders. The flares on white parachutes glowed like amber orbs. Beneath them all, the sea took on an impressive and luminous dark green glow and in this coloured light I saw the barges moving like shadows for the shore. No more silence. The guns on the beach opened up on the invaders who drove their barges into the sand and let the gangways down. I saw infantry jump ashore and with them sappers who let off Bangalore torpedoes to blow up the wire defences. The explosions were near and loud enough to startle the control staff. Seems as if there's been some live ammunition flying about, said the corporal. I reckon those hospital beds will be full before the day's out. Well, the battle went on, and the defenders resisted with everything they had. The invading forces made good ground, or seemed to. 
Another officer arrived and stressed out in one of the forms. I asked him if any tanks were coming. No, he said rather sadly. Actually, I'm the tank umpire, but they decided not to use them at the last minute, so I'm out of a job. He laughed. So did we. An imposing line of generals viewed the whole operation through field glasses. We made a breakfast for all the officers within smelling distance, sidled up to see what they could get for nothing. They got nothing. About half a dozen of them were sitting about in the tent. At 11.30 the operation was called off. I heard the generals weren't satisfied with the invasion and wanted to do it again. Casualties had been too heavy. Monday 14th. Windy, dusty, hot. The so-called invading forces are now back in their ships. They'll go straight into real action when they return to the Mediterranean. They always do that after a divisional scheme. Sicily, maybe Italy. Tuesday 15th. Another scheme this morning. A brigade scheme this time. This time the landing beaches were designated by red, amber and green. I was on the amber staff. I was enjoying the show immensely when Cousins abruptly turned to me and said, Now leave one telephone and one DR at Amber. Don't lend that jeep to anybody. Tell the officers they can bloody well walk. They got a pair of legs just like everyone else. That jeep's for messages in case the lines break. Go ahead. You can all get down to it till three o'clock. I must say I was surprised to have the responsibility for Amber control thrust upon me as if I were a staff sergeant of long signal standing. Up to now I was an inquisitive onlooker. I felt like a spectator who had suddenly been picked to referee the game. Wednesday 16th. Well, I certainly had more to do this time. The messages were brought to me and I phoned them through by the light of the radio bulb in the wireless truck. Several umpires asked for the loan of the jeep and, contrary to Cousin's orders, I let them have it. I was amazed at the helplessness of some officers, though most of them enjoying themselves very much. Thursday 17th. All over. We left for Jerusalem at 6pm, intending to visit Petra, but couldn't find mule transport. Some writers go into raptures over Petra. The celebrated Doughty, however, described it as an eyesore, a mountainous close of iron cliffs, he wrote, in which the ghastly waste monuments of a sumptuous barbaric art from the first glance, an eyesore. Surely there is no worse description than that. Back to Italy now. Whenever we mention Monte Cassino, our minds leap straight to the events of the first half of 1944, the four brutal battles and the destruction of the Benedictine Monastery on top of Monte Cassino itself. But those battles are still a long way off in June 1943, and at this stage there is no thought at all that a little way down the line this might become an ideal defensive line for the Germans. Rather, at this moment in time, the Liri Valley and the area around Casino is merely a staging area for the Germans as old formations, lost in the snow and misery at Stalingrad, are reborn, phoenix-like, and assembled in southern Italy. Old units, such as 14th Panzer Corps, for example, which is one of the reasons why we find 43-year-old Colonel Dr. Wilhelm Maus, the new chief medical officer of the Corps, here and between the thunderstorms, enjoying the many delights of Italy, ice cream included. 12th June 1943. I went to the monastery of Monte Cassino this afternoon. A thunderstorm and heavy rain made it cooler, and at the same time I saw bizarre clouds above the mountains. I went up in the cable railway, a distance of 500 metres in only eight minutes. What a view! <laughs> the monastery is broad and massive on the mountain heights. High pines guard the entrance. There's an atrium surrounded by pillars. 
On a wide stairway, we wait for a German father who is to give us a guided tour. This church and monastery have been destroyed more than once. We wandered for hours during the tour and missed the final cable railway down. So we cheerfully climbed down the mountain and did not regret it, as the mountain scenery was wonderful. 13th June 1943. Casino. I expected a lot of people at a Pentecostal mass today, but only a few hundred people gathered at the main altar. It was business as usual, not like a holy day at all. The bishop changed his clothes too. It was interesting. Once he wore a high triangular cap and then a small round one. This outward kind of religious exercise is repulsive for Germans. We seek in God his great personality, but not an outward display. I then went to Ostia and completed the official business. General Hüb was not present. He had to fly to see Adolf Hitler in Berstengarten and is expected back tomorrow morning. In the afternoon, I met General Alts, Dr. Penner, the last Afrika Korps army doctor. We sat together for an hour in the hotel entrance, and he told me about very interesting events on the course of the war in Africa. 15th June 1943. This morning, the official duty started again. The Hermann Göring division will be moved into a more southern area probably going to Sicily. The 29th Panzergeralldivision will come here in its place. We are becoming a considerable force. The islands of Pantellaria and Lampedusa have surrounded to the English with barely any resistance. It is always the same with these Italians. I admit they are really, really lovely, nice people, but they are just not soldiers. They make delicious ice cream, they are very interesting ruins, and a wonderful fatherland that they should be happy with. But Mussolini cannot succeed in making them into a people of the world. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back with more from Between the Lines in just a moment. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's head to Tunisia. It's important to remember a campaign like this doesn't come to a full stop overnight. For a start, at the end of May, the Allies had to turn their attention to looking after German and Italian prisoners of war, and all of those men had to be guarded, watched, fed, and taken care of carefully. Not to mention another 150,000 Axis POWs who'd surrendered in the first couple of weeks this month. There's also furious preparations going on for the next campaign, the invasion of Sicily, all across northwest Africa, through Tunisia and into Algeria, Allied forces are training once again. Take the 56th Heavy Regiment, Royal Artillery, for example. They're in Algeria, where we find RSM Jack Ward helping to lick the men into shape, old hands and new boys alike. But Jack's still getting some much-needed rest and recuperation, and as eager as ever to catch up with any news that's available from home. 19th of June. Feet up and far from home. This is Sunday and the time is 6.15pm. Have dinner at 7pm. It's started to rain and thunder in the distance. <laughs> Storm, I expect. Very hot again today. Keep putting May for June in a diary. <laughs> I've also done the same in the letters. I wonder why. Received mails 28 and 29 today. Heard that 35 Summer Dawn has caught a packet. Wonder what damage... Shall write an air letter tonight to mum. Poof, still up. Received number 30 airmail today. Hopeful more today. Wrote to Violet and Ralph, who were going to spend some time with Mr and Mrs Mitchell. <laughs> Had to double all centuries owing to an Arab missing. Have a wireless set in the mess now, and so hear all the news. Still waiting on the news that we've invaded Italy and France. Hope to get some soon. I've seen some good men. OK, someone else who's had some downtime is Major General Oscar Griswold. It had been a few days since much happened that might have prompted him to pick up his notebook. On and around Guadalcanal, everything had seemed to be daily routine, except this week it's different. Things are hotting up now, and Griswold's many years of experience are paying dividends. Incidentally, when Griswold mentions COMSOPAC, well, it's another acronym... Comso Pack stands for Commander South Pacific Area, a man with a huge amount of responsibility covering all of the base and local ground, naval and air defence forces assigned to the South Pacific. At this point, Comso Pack is Admiral William Halsey Jr., Bull Halsey, who develops something of a reputation for being bold and determined. But here's Oscar to pick up the story. 14th June 1943. Nothing much. A lot of reorganizing work. We made a record here in unloading four ships in a very few days in spite of two conditions red and three heavy rains. The island received commendation from Comsopac on this. Light bombing last two nights. No damage. Our planes have knocked down over 50 enemy planes that had tried to interfere twice with shipping. 15th June 1943. 
Today is my 33rd anniversary of my graduation from West Point. 33 years ago, I was very confident. I thought then I knew it all. Now I'm not sure of what I know of this military game. So vastly complicated. One thing I am sure of, and that is the principles and guiding light of Old West Point have been of inestimable value through 33 years of service. A grand old school. Condition red and bombs again tonight. No damage. 16th June, 1943. A very spectacular enemy dive bomb raid on our shipping in the harbor. Had a ringside seat on the beach. Enemy attacked our shipping viciously, diving from a great height with prior strafing before dropping their bombs. One LST hit and burning. All cargo lost. One big freighter, Solano, hit repeatedly, burning and sinking by the stern. Successfully beached. Some of cargo can be salvaged and ship can probably be salvaged. Unofficially reported tonight, enemy losses to be 46 zeros, 30 dive bombers, and 8 probables. However, about 15 dive bombers did make a successful attack. Six of our pilots are reported missing tonight. Others of our planes are damaged. A very bitter dogfight. Saw two planes go down clearly, and others out of the corner of my eye. Saw several dead and quite a few wounded being taken off the ships. A full moon tonight all night long. Weather probably favorable. We'll have plenty of attention tonight from our friends, the Japanese. 17th June, 1943. Admiral Nimitz, Commander-in-Chief of the Pacific, accompanied by Admiral Halsey, Com Sopak, arrived at Henderson Field at 11 a.m. today. We'll be with them for two days. Both impress me as real first-team men. Both quite dissimilar. Nimitz, tall, ruddy, with a clear blue eye. Halsey, shorter, a bulldog jar, a real fighting man. Real men, both of them, I think. Casualties and wounded mounting from yesterday's raid. Exact numbers still unknown. 18th June, 1943. Saw Admiral Nimitz off at 4 a.m. Got up at 3 a.m. Spent rest of the day with Admiral Halsey, showing him over the occupied part of the island. Pretty tired tonight. Last night's raid over Talaji. It was quite some fireworks. Sounded like a battle. No damage from the bombing. They hit two of our ships hard, but it looks as if we'll be able to save them both. The cargo of one, ISI-340, is totally destroyed. A portion of the other, Solano, cargo, also lost. The ship itself is aground on Lunga Point. Casualties continue to mount. The dead to date? 25. 8 Army, 17 Navy. Total wounded not available. Another condition red today, but the Japs sheared away and did not come close. And finally this week, there's nothing to report from Veer Hodgson in Notting Hill Gate, but if we head up to Edinburgh in Scotland, then we can do a quick check-in with the Blythes. Julia, or Ma as we know her, is sending weekly missives out to Port Alberta in Canada, where her young son, 22-year-old Flight Lieutenant David Nairn Blythe, is training to be an RAF navigator. The class's exams have just finished. Wings have been issued, and now David is on leave. The good news about those results has finally reached home. 13th of June. Dear David, I have just received your wire and send heartiest congratulations from all. Your exam results are not a surprise. 
All we can do is say we are very proud of you. I'm not going to say much, as I'm expecting a new address from you. No doubt you will be moving. I see the news of your success came from Cleveland. That only means one thing. You have managed to go to Aunt Jean's again. I'm glad. John Moss is being married on Saturday. Mary was being called up, so they advanced the wedding, or that's what they told us. It all seems rather rushed. We'd better not ask why. We are not invited, as the rooms can only cater for a certain number, but I do wonder if there are reasons why too many people might not be a good idea. June has just come in to tell me Mr. MacDonald is delighted at your exam success and sends his congratulations. We will hold our celebrations until the day you come home. Cheerio and love from all. Ma. P.S. You deserve the best, David. You have always worked hard. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We do hope you found a little insight and were briefly entertained as we were reading Between the Lines. Between the Lines is a We Have Ways production. Julia Mar Blythe is read by Ruth Sillers. David Blythe is read by Matthew Malthouse. Oscar Griswold is read by Michael Lyons. Chester Hansen is read by Lance Fuller. Veer Hodgson is read by Rachel Holland. Heinz Knocker is read by Lucas Veschler. Bertie Packer is read by Paul Waggett. Jack Ward is read by Adam Jarrell. Harry Wilson is read by Joel Emery. Narration is by James Holland and Al Murray. Editing by John Gill and Joey McCarthy. Written and produced by Merrin Walters. The executive producer is Tony Pastor. <laughs>